All right, um, you are here listening to Green Left um, Radio um, on Friday morning with me and, well, me, Jacob and Laleen. <laughs> morning, listeners. We're a bit fiddly this morning. I'm a bit tired, so I'm pressing the wrong buttons here. Okay, so. Yep. Today we've got a few interviews lined up. There's some interesting things happening. Um, there's an interview with Sarah Hathaway about what's happening at the Corio Refinery and a interview with uh, Paulo Sanchez about what's happening in Latin America. And we're going to interview somebody about the uh, Miriam, I'm not sure of her surname, um, about the Queen Vic market and the proposals to alter Queen Vic market into something else, eh? I think it's um, to... Um, build flats, more flats? Yeah, basically to knock it down and to build flats. You know, there's a similar things being proposed for present markets as well. Mm. So at some point we need to talk about that. But anyway, let's start with Green Left Radio, um, acknowledgement of um, the traditional people of the land. Green Left Radio is being broadcasted to you from 3CR Studios in Smith Street, Collingwood, which is built on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded, and as with many other First Nations across the continent, this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Yeah. I guess um, now to start off um, with um, some sort of headline news in terms of like, you know, what's happening in politics. Um, there's been actually sort of almost a uh, recent victory um, as of yesterday. Um, for listeners' information, um, the Border Force had organised um, a, rec- a recruitment information session um, at the Covenant in Abbotsford, of all places, which is a bit bizarre because... Um, the Covenant in Abbotsford is kind of like a, a domain for like lots of left-wing kind of activism and activity, especially with lentils um, yeah, especially lentils there, yeah, yeah and the um, markets happen there too. It's, yeah, it was just a bit bizarre. So um, a- refugee activists, um, because you know the border force play quite a role in the current detention regime um, by the Australian government. Um, activists organised a snap protest against it, against them, and there was actually planned to be happening at um, yesterday, last night. So what were they going to do at, at um, the convent, Abbotsford convent? Uh, um, the, uh, the, well, basically, the border force had a recruitment information session, sort of like, ah, recruitment sort of like, session. sort of okay. like how, sort of like how the air force could hold a recruitment session. Um, okay. And so, yep, um, refugee activists um, organised a snap protest against this. Um, and of course, what happened is the protest didn't end up happening because um, the border force cancelled um, the recruitment information <laughs> session. Um, I think in response to the to the planned protest. So, yeah. and you never hear this in the, on the main media, do you? But that's interesting. Oh, good. That was quick quick work by the um, refugee action group. It's great work. Well yeah. done. Yeah, very. It was very um, very good. Um, it's a you now. It's not. It's not like the be- It's like not a. A flashy kind of victory, but it's uh, still, I guess, a victory. Small victories count, you know. Every small thing counts. It all adds up in the end. They they understand there's there's protest, there's dissatisfaction, and there's opposition to such such things. And the border force they don't do themselves any favors when they attack refugees and um, pepper, pepper spray people. But anyway. Yeah. Okay, I guess um, another um, sort of next sort of um, news story that's sort of happening is um, I guess now that there's going to be there's going to be sort of big mobilisations for equal marriage um, happening 
um, happening around the country. Um, um, tomorrow, um, at least, there'll be one in Melbourne at the State Library at 1pm, which will be repeating that announcement later for the activist calendar. Um, but I guess... Um, where the kind of movement is going is it's all in response to um, this proposed plebiscite um, that the government has been, um, the Liberal government has been quite keen um, to push um, the plebiscite, um, basically a plebiscite on whether we should um, allow um, for marriage equality. Um, and the response, um, the movement has kind of like been um, very firm that we you know we we shouldn't ha- we should not have a plebiscite. We should just um, put the bill first and pass it um, because um, there's already um, existing um, support um, for marriage equality. The majority of this polls after polls suggest that the majority of Australians support marriage equality. Um, but I guess um, there's some criticism. The, the, um, there's criticism of the government that the plebiscite is just a delaying tactic. It's a way of like you know. Um, it's more than that. I think it's a concession to the extreme right. Uh, right wing like the Christensen's and Hanson and so on, who are, you know, touting the, the notions of, um, they, they, they cover it up by saying it's better if you have a plebiscite because you have the endorsement of the general public. The reality is this is obviously a concession made by the, the, what they call center left or, you know, it's, um, the less conservative forces in the Liberal Party if there's ever one to the extreme conservatives. So there's a lot of internal mm. um, discussions going on. But yesterday I heard the news that it was um, the major- more and more and more people are now coming to the view that this plebiscite is a complete waste of time, money, energy, and so on. People have agreed that it is going to be the process is very clear. Even if you go to plebiscite, you still have to put it through a parliament. It's the same thing that's going to happen after the plebiscite. And after the plebiscite, there's no guarantee that the um, parliamentarians who oppose um, same-sex marriage are going to necessarily uh, concur and uh, vote for same-sex marriage. They can still vote against it. So what is the purpose of this whole drama they are drumming up? It simply doesn't make sense. For any person who's got a, you know, an ounce of brain, say, what, what are they doing? Mm. And hundred what it was 160 million and keeps going up every time I hear different people say different figures. Mm. But if you keep to the base of 160 million, there's so many people sleeping on the streets, homeless people. Mm. And this is what they want to do. It's just... It's a human rights issue. That's another one that, that's very interesting, actually. People have posed it in the form that is very clear. It is a human rights issue. I mean, I don't tell you who you sleep with. Why are you telling me who I should sleep? It's not mm. your business. Well, it's, um, I remember there's been an analogy that um, the whole idea of a plebiscite is kind of absurd because it's sort of like putting, um, uh, uh, it's sort of like putting the question, you know, um, of, you know, imagine if we had a plebiscite for um, no-fault divorce when that was implemented. But at the same time, um, the government actually refuses um, to put, um, you know, to put referendums or plebiscites to sing to issues that are actually 
poppy of some significance yeah, like for example yep. w- whether we go to war or not <laughs> exactly, they would never exactly they would never they would never put a plebiscite in Korean war because yeah. you know they know the majority of Australians would oppose it yeah. um and of course many wars are started on the basis of of a minority's um will as opposed to majority and usually it's on very flimsy reasons and usually it's about dovetailing the US or the UK or any other European country the Australia just straddles this 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 overall notion that they feel they're European, but they also they think they're part of Asia. So they're straddling these two schizophrenic notions, which which drives them to do things, insane things sometimes. What the hell are we doing in the Middle East? You know, nobody even talks about things like who is supplying them with the weapons, both sides. Who's giving them weapons? Not a word about it, but they're always talking about, oh, you know, we're going to support our friends. We've got to, we get, their standard line is we're fighting ISIS. But who's giving, who's giving ISIS weapons? It's just, the whole thing is, is so corrupt and, you know, un- un- inconceivably unacceptable killing of people. It, it's just, oh, it's, it's stomach churning anyway. I think people understand, those three CR listeners will, will be in the main against that. But in the end, things like they don't go to a plebiscite, that's, that's the key thing. And, and important stuff, you know, like um, climate change, why don't they put that to a plebiscite? Yeah, it's, and Hanson's calling for a royal commission on this issue. They don't, the, the One Nation does, the party doesn't even believe in it. They, and these calls don't go to a plebiscite. It's, it's stuff like this that, is religious, is based on extreme conservative views. Uh, they have all these excuses of, oh, well, we want majority of the people to endorse it, which is totally hypocritical. The, the whole strategy is very hypocritical. But anyway, um, let's move on to the next news item. Um, I guess just one sort of um, major kind of development, um, sort of it's pending kind of development, but there's um, in The Guardian it was reported um, that... Um, Manus Island staff um, are being told that um, deport deportations will begin this month mm-hmm. um, in October. Um, essentially what this means is because um, there's been um, Manus Island's on PNG, if I'm is it on Korean? Yep, yep. Yep, yep. So basically in light of the sort of um, decision that um, um, PNG is um, on unconstitutional and they can't, you know, maintain it and, um, you know, it's already been, it's been decreed that it should be closed down already. Of course, nothing has really happened on that front. But this is a bit of a concerning development that basically what could happen, um, this is all pending development, so speculation, is that if the Manus Island staff are being told that deportations will be happening of the refugees who are settled there, it means that a number of um, refugees who are currently being housed there will potentially be deported back to their home countries, which would be um, very uh, disastrous because it would mean that they would be going back to the country. death sentence to them. Or alternatively, they might be um, getting deported to um, the other detention centres, which, um, for example, Nauru or um, Christmas Island. Um, but, of course, um, there's also issues, for example, those they could become even more overcrowded leading to more deterioration of... Well, there's no religion. guarantees they can even go to Christmas Island because for immigration purposes, uh, Christmas Island's are excised from Australian territory. So what does that mean? It's very co- much more complicated than, than we think it is because mm. all these border laws they've brought in supposedly to protect Australia from what God only knows. Mm. Um, so exactly what's going to happen to them, where are they going to be deported to? 
you know, it's it's really some of them don't even have papers. How are they going to be deported to which country they came from? How do they know which country they could say they could pinpoint any country these days? Mm. You know, I could come from India, but I'm actually from Malaysia. So where are they coming from? Mm. Do they have all the records? Now many of them don't have papers. Mm. So the deportation question is very tricky one. So this is going to be to see how the developments happen. Yeah. So, but um, refugee activists who are um, who are active in the movement who are tuning in should just um, stay tuned for any sort of developments. Yeah. Um, for what, um, for what, and um, it could be the subject of our um, the responses of the refugee movement, whatever happens in the next couple of mo- weeks and months. Yeah, people on um, on alert, and they finding out what's happening. All right. So, should we get our first interview happening? Yep. All right. So, let me play some announcements while you do that. Um, and before, turn your mic off. And for listeners' um, information, we're listening to 3CR. Um, 8554 on your AM dial and this is Green Left Radio one of the things that um, we are at the moment dealing with is the fact that our, we didn't reach our uh, financial target for 3CR for, the, for this year we fell short like about 20,000 so any um, listener who is able to donate please do donate and as you probably know, and you've heard several times, any donation over $2 is tax deductible. And to keep this alternative media happening, um, your donations goes a long way. And 3CI is run by volunteers, um, and it'll be great if people can dig deep and donate as much as they can. And if you want to know how to donate, do ring us. It's Nine four one nine eight three double seven. So it's nine four one nine eight three double seven. And we have Sarah Hathaway online to talk about a fresh dispute that's broken out at the refineries in Carayo. Welcome to Three CR, Sarah. Hi, Lally. How are you? Good. And um, this is amazing. This this attacks on workers keep coming, doesn't it? Um, just start, tell us the story, what's happening? So um, on Wednesday morning, um, there were about 300 um, workers. They assembled at the main entrance to the Geelong Oil Refinery um, and that sort of kicked off a community protest against um, really um, serious unsafe work conditions um, that have resulted in a number of pretty serious accidents, including hospitalisation. Um, that sounds serious. So, and they've been running a 24-hour um, protest since Wednesday, and they're still going strong. Um, and that's despite the, the local paper today saying that it, the protest is over. Um, so <laughs> be good if we can let the community know today that it's still going strong and we still need community support. Hang on, um, hang on. Let's, let's back, back uh, rewind a little bit. You said something about people having to go into hospital. What actually happened? And what um, is the cause of the dispute? Maybe we start with that. Yeah, so I, there's one particular incident that I know of that a worker um, blew off or lost a part of their hand mm. um, and was hospitalised. Um, there's been a number of um, gas leaks. Um, and one of the tipping points was that Viva Energy, who owns the refinery, um, they took over from Shell, decided to sack their firefighting staff on site. Um, 
and that made the local papers and then there was community concern as well as concern from the workers that if, God forbid, something serious happened, um, that first line of response would be gone. Okay, so big health and safety issue there, okay. Yeah. So the dispute started over the fact somebody was injured badly and was sent to hospital and there's protests from the workers and the community? Yes, yeah. No, there's been a, there's been a number of um, injuries. That's just one example. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to that, um, the other claim is parity of condition. Yep. Um, so Viva Energy have been quite open about the fact they're bringing in 457 workers, oh, yeah. um, which are being majorly, majorly exploited. Um, and there was one worker that I was speaking to on the line who said he witnessed 457 workers removing asbestos um, with nothing except a, a wet handkerchief over their face. Oh, God. Um, no proper safety equipment. So he went over and gave them the masks. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's what's going to happen if they um, get rid of the local workforce and just bring in 457s. Um, it's going to be even even more unsafe, first for the workers and the community. Okay, so what sparked this current uh, protest? Um, just a, just an accumulation of all these things over the last few months. Okay, so um, and I just boiled to a head, and workers said enough, and they've walked walked off. How many workers and what unions are involved? Um, so, there, I think on day shift, there's usually about 500 workers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was 300 that um, started it off, mm-hmm. um, and it, it is a, it is a community run. Um, protest. Okay, so the unions are not involved? No. All right. That's an interesting one. It's a little unusual. So how is the company responding to the community protest? Sorry, how is... Is the, is the company responding to the community protest? Um, make, making life really difficult. Um, so there were, there's already been court orders issued yesterday. Um, and one of the demands is that the workers want to actually sit down and have a meeting with Visa Energy. Um, so at this point, they're not even really coming into the table to want to have a discussion. Um, and yeah, so that's why, you know, the workers want to keep going and keep having the 24 hour protest. Okay, so the, work, the workers want to have a negotiated settlement of this, these issues. The unions surely must be involved in the negotiations. Um, well, no, that, sorry, this is the difficulty of the company, um, is due to court orders, they can't be involved. Oh. Yeah, so it's making it really hard, um, oh. and the community and the workers are having to organise themselves. So they have taken a court order against the unions being involved? That's, that's my understanding at the moment, yes. That's um, strange. That, um, the unions have been ordered off. Hmm. Um, and um, can't can't assist, can't have um, paid union officials down here. Um, so, but was the comp- is the composition um, of the workforce unionised or is it ununionised? Um, do you have um, any knowledge of that? Yeah, no, it, it is unionised. I'm sorry, I'm just having to be very careful about what I say. Um, but no, it, it is a unionised workforce. Um, and they, they've been having meetings um, for the last couple of months talking about what's been happening at Viva. Um, but again, because of, the, because of the court orders that have come through yesterday, um, it's just significantly complicated things 
Okay, so that's um, why you're being very careful. Yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. So give us give us the the, the issues that are of relevance and how people can help. Firstly, where is this um, refinery in Geelong or Karaya? Yeah, so um, Karaya is Geelong, um, but it's it, yeah, it's in Karaya, sort of the northern end of Geelong. Okay. Um, so it's um, refinery road off Melbourne Road, off the Mail Highway. If you're travelling down from Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're on the train, um, if you want to come down, get off at Karaya train station and you can walk it. Mm-hmm. Um, at this stage, um, it's going to keep going. Um, there, were, there were plans to get family down here over the weekend. Um, so any and all support. What, what's really hamstringing us is that the workers here cannot speak to the media. Mm. Um, anything that is said to media is being used as evidence against them. Um, okay. We have to be extremely careful about what goes up on social media. Yeah. Um, so really, the best the best way that people can support is just to come down here if they can and ask what they can do to help. Yeah. So that's the best support they can get. Okay. Yeah. Is there an actual picket line that's being set up? Um, it's the the workers are here. It's not a picket line in the sense of no one in, no one out. Yeah. Um, obviously, they're having to let certain workers in to make sure make sure that the refinery doesn't explode. Mm-hmm. Um, so, on that sense, um, you know, certain um, maintenance crew are being let in. Um, but as far as I'm aware, the main the main aim was to stop trucks. Yeah. Um, but even then, if if workers want to go in, um, the workers out the front on the protest are just chatting and saying these are the issues, these are why we're out here. Um, if you want to go into work, we won't physically stop you, but you are crossing, you know, you're crossing the protest. Mm. Um, so there have been people walking in. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some yeah. of them actually on strike? Yes, as far as, far as I know. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, but again, like, I'm not sure, I'm not quite sure what the dynamics are because of um, court orders yesterday. Mm. So you've got to find out what the details of the court orders are before we proceed. That's yeah, a bit tricky. Uh, there yeah. will be um, there will be an update meeting um, this morning. Mm. Um, so that there might be more information. Yeah. So um, we need to yeah. catch up with you next week just yeah. to give more information to listeners. Yeah, I guess the one sort of last question, though it's not really one sort of a concluding kind of question, is I noticed um, the Geelong Advertiser has um, printed an article about this. Um, and what has kind of been the reaction to the local media um, from the local media to this particular um, protest? Um, well, over the past few months, um, there has been a um, concerted effort to get articles into the Geelong Addy. Um, and they, they did give the protest great coverage yesterday. Um, it was the front page of the local paper. Um, but then, as I said at the start this morning, they put an article in saying the protest is over and there's nothing, so don't bother coming down here. Something's happened, eh? Um, so that's, that's going to make um, a community response quite difficult. Yeah. Um, if, if people think that it's not running. Um, so it's really going to rely on, on the guys down here to reach out, you know, informally through their own network yep. Yep. to try and get the word out um, because, yeah, you know, officially um, we can't put things out there. Mm. Um, yeah, so they're just um, Viva Energy. They, they know what they're doing. They've probably got, you know, a whole army of lawyers. Seems like solicitors, it. Um, and they're, they're, yeah. From the way you're yeah. presenting it, very sort of, you know, um, pussyfooting around um, the issue. I've never seen a, a dispute um, 
described in this particular way. Um, and I think it's becoming more common these days, uh, legal, legal issues or legal avenues being pursued against workers as opposed to employer and employee organizations negotiating issues. The legalities are being vastly used to quieten workers at a, yeah. at a very broad level. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we, we've had a similar experience in Geelong when we um, had a community protest at the Little Creatures Brewing Company. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of years back, and again, community protests, um, unions couldn't be involved. They were issuing court orders against individuals who were then at risk of losing their houses. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, and that those are the same tactics that we're seeing again um, at the Geelong Refinery. Okay. So it's all become intermediary, and so far we haven't had any response from the government? Um, no, at this stage, um, no response. Okay. As far so as I, yeah, as far as I know. It looks like an issue that we need to talk about almost every week to keep people updated and getting support for them. So do you want to, to repeat where this um, community picket line is so people who are interested can come down or the local uh, community would know exactly where it is so they can come to it? Absolutely. So Refinery Road off Melbourne Road. Um, or if you're catching public transport, get off at Corio train station. And if you want to follow updates on the campaign on Facebook, um, you can go to the Geelong Refinery Action Group, cool. which is a, a Facebook page that you can um, yeah, try and find out what's going on down here. Okay, we need to talk to you next week to see what the developments are going to be because this is going to escalate. People aren't going to just sit there and let this simmer away the way it is. Either the company will escalate it or the, something will happen because community is continuing its protest there. So... Let's keep a close eye on this one. Thank you very much, Sarah, and, and good to see people like yourself out there supporting um, pickets like or pickets or oh, pseudo pickets like the community pickets. Let's call it a community <laughs> yeah. picket. It's not community a pseudo picket. picket. It's a community, community picket. Yes, absolutely. Well <laughs> done. You. Well done. <laughs> it will, it will do keep us informed. Okay. Thanks, Sarah. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. And you're listening to 3CR and Green Left Radio, Jacob and Lalita at the helm. So we are going to going to news on Poland, Jacob. Yes, so um, there's been a... Listeners probably have already heard this because it's been actually making um, the, head, um, the news um, and all the way. There's been... Um, there was a massive... Um, strike of um, Polish women, um, Polish women going on strike um, against uh, an abortion ban. Um, to t- give you the sort of background, um, basically um, um, the Polish government uh, basically put forward um, a bill that would um, in, um, that would ban abortion in almost all circumstances unless the pregnancy threatened the life of the mother, and even then, women would still be put at risk, as you know, Amnesty International explained, with no clear guidelines about how close to death a woman or girl must be for performing abortion for medical reasons to be lawful. Um, the onus will be on doctors to delay it um, as long as possible. And of course, there was also um, there was also um, for women who would um, do abor- um, perform abortions if this bill were to pass, um, it would set it it sought, it set prison terms of up to five years for women seeking abortion and doctors who perform them. Um, and it is now um, because I think this was going to be amended, but of course that's 
not really relevant anymore um, because in response um, thousands of um, people took to the streets um, it was um, it happened on Black Monday um, which um, where more than a hundred thousand protested rowed to boycott work or school and in an act of solidarity a number of businesses and corporations um, reportedly um, pledged to shut their doors as part of the strike. Um, the the kind of one of the interesting things uh, about this protest is it kind of takes some inspiration um, from uh, because um, there was organisers said the the strike was um, and protests it was actually expired by a particular protest that happened in um, Iceland. Um, called the Women's Day Off that um, it took place that took place over 40 years ago and it called um, during which in that protest um, 90% of women refused to work or perform housework in protest of economic inequality and workplace discrimination. Um, when was this? This was 40 years ago in Iceland. Um, That's right. Yes. 1975, I yeah, think. 1975. Yeah. Um, but yes, um, that's just only the sort of back the first kind of article. Um, what has actually happened since then is um, there's been all these sort of mass protest. There's been this sort of mass protest and strike. And um, basically the response as of now is um, that they've actually potentially had a victory because the government... Um, in light of the mass protests, have already um, considered um, um, push, um, pulling back the bill and not putting it forward to the parliament. Um, so there, yeah, that's um, basically a pretty, you know, exciting story showing sort of the the power of you know people power, you know, mobilisations and um, you know. I, so at this point, I think they can declare it victory, and of course, if they if if they ever if they try to push the bill again. Um, the, um, the, um, they could always just do the protest again into putting mm. the pressure. This is an interesting up. issue because, firstly, it's a women's issue in a country that is predominantly Catholic. The Pope actually went to Poland not not so long ago, and the fact that uh, it was it's a country where we, they had a lot of workers' protests. Too. There was a movement called Solidarity at one time, Solidarność. It was called. This is, um, I think, in the 90s. Mm. And um, that's the time when Glasnost was seen in place and, and these movements were happening. So since then, it's been f- gone very quiet and, and it's sort of leaned towards more the conservative side of politics. So this is like re- re-emerging as a big issue for women, which, which, which then demands that the men look at the issue from a progressive point of view. So... Good on the women in Poland, fighting so many um, obstacles in their way. You know, the Pope's visit, that the whole place is Catholic, and um, the fact that women's movement have not been that much um, active in many countries these days. Uh, usually they end up in court rather than a people's mobilization. Mm. Even here you see the women's movement is not, doesn't mobilize a lot of people. It seems to have... Um, not died off, but weakened in many ways by many, many attacks that have been happening. But great, we'll have to keep an eye on that and see what mm. the results going to be. Yeah, actually, in the um, relaying this um, to Australian politics, there's actually quite a big sort of movement developing um, um, for reproductive rights in currently in Queensland, and um, we yes, in yes, the past yes, we yes. actually interviewed sure. um, an activist who is um, currently involved in that campaign. Um, but that has been a very sort of developing campaign that is becoming. Broader, you know, they haven't gone all the way to do a mass strike yet, but it is um, developing in a way where there's um, where there's 
um, protests happening. Um, there's large public forums where over 200 people attend. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's that's um, there's probably potentially lessons for the movement in Queensland to learn from the the Polish example. Yeah. Um, but it's de- it's um, but that is definitely something that um, that has parallels with um, what's happening um, what's happening there. Okay, so let's move on to another piece of news, which is the West Papua news. Um, it's really interesting because quietly, uh, maybe maybe I, quietly for Australia, but other countries seem to know a bit more about what's happening in Papua as well. Uh, recently, uh, the West Papua, the Papuan um, forces have been able to get the Melanesian spearhead group to accept West Papua as part of their group, which means the West Papuans now have access to the UN. So this struggle has been going on, going on for many decades, and when the, um, the Indonesians uh, and Australia and so on were divvying up the colonies many decades ago, um, Unfortunately, um, Australia supported Indonesia in retaining West Papua as part of Indonesia. So now we have a movement within West Papua where people want to be independent and fair, uh, you know, and fair enough too. So now that the, the, the group has been recognized and accepted as a part of the, the Melanesian, which is called the MSG, uh, Melanesian Spearhead Group, they are now looking to approaching the Pacific and Car- the Pacific Coalition, um, which, which is now supporting this move. They're moving to the Caribbean African um, support group, which will be even more powerful, and that means they can harness more support for their plight for independence. Um, there is enormous support for this amongst the uh, people of West Papua, and you'll find that the Indonesians are fighting very, very hard to um, stop this happening. Uh, if in, in Indonesia, if anyone supports West Papua, they very quickly get arrested and usually thrown into prison with, with no redress to um, a democracy, so to speak. So some of the West Papua are saying this. They say that they are confident that people in the Pacific, particularly across Micronesia, Polynesia and Melanesia, the government and the ordinary people are in support, including New Zealand and Australia, um, and ordinary people are always with us, is what one of the speakers for this movement is saying. Her name is Wenda. Now, West Papua fight had, been, had many things in common with other regional independence movements, such as Guam and New Caledonia, as well as the struggles against oppression in Palestine and West Sahara. And Wenda said that they think that is a common struggle with the same sentiment, and, I ho- and they're hoping that people will be able to support them. Now, there are many f- um, Facebook and Internet sites you can go to to get more information on this, but there is a foreign office in the Docklands if people want to visit that. Um, you can always ring them up and offer their your support. And there's also um, a campaign there. Um, the foreign minister of, of West Papua is actually... Um, in that office and he runs his, his portfolio from there and he, uh, they have rented the office and they need the support of Australian, Australians to be able to pay the rent so they, uh, the, the scheme they have is people pay $1 a day so it's like $30 a month 
uh, to be able to pay the rent for that particular office. So if you are interested, I'll give you the phone number later. I've got it in my bag. I'll take it out. <laughs> but that, that's the, a quiet struggle, but a very firm and a, a struggle that's moving forward, which is actually one of the more positive things that's been happening in this area. Yeah. I guess um just want to maybe, we covered this um, last week, but I guess I want to cover it again. Um, basically, um, the current Australian government has been um, proposing, um, preparing sort of uh, a plan um, to address this so-called welfare dependency um, problem. Um, basically, um, the Social Services Minister Christian Porter um, has basically um, is basically going to be they're going to be looking to implement this 96 million um, try test and learn fund to trial um, experimental initiatives aimed at getting key groups off the public books and into employment. Um, basically, the idea um, the idea is to get um, particular two groups off welfare, um, which is um, young parents and young carers. Um, but if you've um, if you've watched um, Q and A. Um, this uh um this Monday there was a particular um, wo- um young woman who um who was um sixteen who um challenged um the social services minister over this basically um saying she's a young she was a young carer um who um um at the age of uh, I think eight had to um be a full time carer for her own mother who had suffered a neurological um disease um dis- um disorder and these and basically you know questioned. Um, Scott Porter's kind of initiatives and say, you know, or what is exactly your plan? Um, because, you know, I don't want, <laughs> um, I don't want to be dependent on welfare, but it seems you have no idea on what you're doing. Um, because, um, basically, essentially it's, um, this sort of proposal doesn't seem to say, suggest anything other than it's apparently supposed to put, um, Young carers and young, um, young single, um, um, young um, parents into employment because there's a, a problem of unemployment. But of course, the issue I, I think I, my own personal opinion is that, um, how, how it seems to be a kind of like an injustice that this young woman was only receiving an allowance of just eight dollars a day to begin with to be a full-time carer. If anything, um, I would argue that, um, personally that the welfare, we should actually have uh, a much better welfare system that actually provides, um, supports these, um, these, um, the women like, um, like herself who are young, who are, um, who are full-time carers for their own, um, for their own parents because it's actually kind of like says something, um, this whole scheme that Scott Porter is pretending, you know, getting them off welfare is kind of suggesting that, you know, Work like, you know, women's work like, or any sort of caring work is increasingly not valued in society and. Never been valued. Um, and of course, the, go- the government shouldn't, um, they basically this assumption that the government shouldn't pay, shouldn't give welfare to these, um, young carers because their work is not valuable. It's, it's, it's not valued. It doesn't deserve. It is valued, but they refuse to pay for it. That's the problem. Yeah. If if they're put in services to take care of the mother and the younger sister this young woman has, um, it'll cost them thousands and thousands of dollars. Imagine having a 24-hour carer for this woman so this young girl can go to school and someone else to care for the child or the same person to, to care for the younger sister. It'll cost them, you know, enormous amount of money for, for, uh, for doing that job. They avoid paying it by they know the value of it but they refuse to recognize the value of it. That's the problem. There's a patriarchal system and a capitalist system that is always not recognized 
uh, women's work or what they see as women's work uh, categorized. But there's more to this pr- plan because the, the, the thing is that they, they're trying to convince the, the, uh, the people of Australia that it is targeted and targeting people who are chronically on welfare and they are unable to get off welfare. Now, their model has been inspired by what they did in New Zealand, and there are very specific things they have done. And Greenleaf Weekly has actually got all that tabulated, and I'll read a few of those. It starts with, with this introduction, introducing compulsory income management for young people on benefits, stripping them of autonomy and respect at a highly vulnerable time in their lives, and it's inspired by Australia's income management experience. One, subjecting women, subjecting any woman on a benefit who has another child to work testing from the time her baby turns, old, turns one. The second one, further sanctions including drug testing for some job seekers and drastic cuts to sole parent benefits if work tests are not met. Three, the encouraging women, you know, the encu- encouraging women beneficiaries and their daughters of reproductive age to undergo long-lasting contraception. Sounds very Nazi-like the way that particular clause to me. Replacing employment, unemployment, sickness, and sole parent benefits with one job seeker support category, subject to a wide range of compulsory work tests and sanctions. And lastly, introducing a workability assessment, making many people who are formerly on a protected invalid benefit subject to work testing based on British sickness and disability reforms. So this is bits and pieces that they've got, some from Britain, some from New Zealand, or mainly from New Zealand, so they can terrorize people into going back to work. Now... This doesn't sound like a incentive scheme or a scheme that is going to encourage people to go to work and stay there. If people go to work, you have to offer them something that's something they enjoy, also something that's useful to the community and not some crappy work that's going to drive you to depression. You know, call centers, for example, I know people who have worked in call centers and haven't lasted more than six months. Some have come out particularly ill and nauseated because of the routineness, the the extreme um, supervision of time, like two or three minutes per call, you have to achieve certain targets, all sorts of different things. And people who are, who are out there probably know, know more about it than me, but those extreme um, work conditions don't encourage people to stay at stay in um, in the um, workforce for very long. Um, now. We do have the next um, interview online. I hope people get um, a bit more details on that model in the We Left Weekly so that um, you can understand what it's all about before making up your mind. It's always good to um, get uh, many sources of information before a decision is made. All right, so the next interviewer is online, and it is Paula Sanchez of the Latin American Social Forum to talk to us about politics in Colombia. And people know recently there was a referendum um, 
plebiscite referendum, similar things, to talk about, um, well, to vote on this peace agreement, agreement between the Colombian government and FARC. And, and we know that it was defeated at, with a, on a slim majority. So let's welcome Paula first. Good morning, Paula. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, good. Now, thank you so much for being available to 3CR. And um, tell us, what, what's, what's the you know, upshot of this now? It's a, such a slim um, miss, isn't it? Yes, yes, it was, it was. I, I'm not sure whether you mentioned, but um, you know, only about 30% of the population voted. Yes, yes, very small so, majority, uh, minority yeah. really, yeah. It is, and, and that was it's one of the, you know, the people are talking about, you know, half of the country, but it's not. It's um, half of that 30%, or, you know, just, just over half. Yeah. Um, voted no, basically. Um, uh, and I think, you know, as a result of a very strong campaign of for the no, for, uh, and, and the, the campaign, uh, you know, of course, I was for years in, in the peace, but um, basically the, the campaign for the no was very, very strongly orientated that, you know, you're voting no, or if you vote yes, you vote, you're voting for revolution, or you're voting for a socialist system, or you're voting for the gorillas to take over, you're voting for a socialist, and for, and then put it as a, like a whole thing, you know, and, and, um, there's a very big problem with education, I think, um, um, confusion, there's a lot of people that didn't know how to vote. Mm. Um, so tell me, yeah. I, I'm curious about the fact that such a small part of the population actually voted. But, but are there any theories about why there was such a small mobilization? Well, different theories. I, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and he was saying that he, he that there's a lot of people think that it's, <clears throat> it's very likely because a lot of people saw they were very confident that you know it's, it's, it's common sense that the yes will win. You know, if you want yes, yes, peace, yes. I said, oh, it's common sense. So everybody else will vote yes. So I don't need to vote. Mm. Um, so that's one of the theories. Uh, um, the other thing is, you know, that this. All these years have it's, it's almost like reflects the degree of um of i guess political education um civic um duty or you know that people lost interest especially young population um that they they just don't care um mm. it's a disengagement of politics by this younger generation isn't it yeah, and, and not just in in in, um, in Colombia. I think it's, it's around the world. I mean, recently there was some um, there's some study done from different parts of the world in relation to um, people interested in politics or not, or interested in voting or participating. And in Colombia was in the world the fourth country, fourth or fifth country. Hmm. Um, you know, we grew. Um, Australia is actually about ten or fifteenth on the list. So it's like it's, it's like a, there's a lot of uh, people that are not they don't care, lost interest. Um, this I don't know. This, I think it's the media. Mm. The, and, and also, yeah. today's leaders aren't exactly inspiring, are they? But <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's mm. a bit scary to think that this is something that's happening in Colombia. Latin America has always been known, well, since the Cuban Revolution, really, have been known as 
for me, the left block of the world where you've got people challenging conservative views and, and fighting uh, North America in its desire to make it, make uh, Latin America its backyard. So it's, um, for me personally, it's, it seems a little bit f- scary, uh, if not sad, to think that young people are disengaged at that level. But the other thing is, why didn't the people who were running the Yes campaign, the government was actually running that campaign, wasn't it? What what sort of campaign did they run? You know, it just it's a mind-boggling thing that if you want peace and if you want this this agreement to happen, um, you want to mobilize people to vote. What what happened there? Can you do you know anything about it? Um, yeah, I think I think it's the same. It's, it's, it's the people that, that you know lost faith. They don't have faith in the government. They've been they haven't been consistent mm. in decisions they made. Um, they many. People grew up in the war, you know, um, during the war. Uh, uh, you, the, the division of the voting was, you know, if you go to the country, the majority of people in the country areas where actually they live, death and blood and, and, and you know, and, and the killings. Um, they voted yes, but mm. the majority of the people on this, in the country, in the city, when they saw all this on TV, they see it on the screens every day, they grew up, you know, that way, they voted no. Um, so, uh, I think it's, you know, uh, lots, lots of interest, um, the very strong campaign for the no, they spend lots of money on it. Yes, um, I can imagine. And I think there's a very strong power from the narcos, you know, the, the drug dealers, hmm. um, the people that are making lots of money out of it. Of people. course, of course. Um, uh, I mean, I was thinking even, you know, United States, if, if oh, yes. it's in Colombia, they wouldn't have, <laughs> they wouldn't have excuse to have a base in Colombia. That's right. They also um, can't sell drugs, can't sell yeah, weapons. Right. <laughs> yeah, so it's not in the best interest. Some people actually leave, or this is their profession. They actually live by killing, you know, the sicarios, or, you know, the, That's right. the people that actually kill for, for money. They, mm. they would lose their job. So oh. basically, there's a strong, Power that you know is in the best interest to to maintain status quo, quo you know, not change things. Um, the people that are voting now, they very rich people, or the ex-presidents, you know, whatever. Mm. Uh, the, uh, we know that there's a very big interest for you know United States to have control over that area, especially because it's sort of next to Venezuela. Mm. And that was another scare campaign. You know, if you vote for peace, you're gonna have you know, Venezuela coming over, and it's the same thing that's happening in Venezuela. Um, somebody also yesterday was talking to me about, you know, the peace process happened in Cuba, but, you know, Cuba, you know, a socialist or communist country. So it's, it's all these, you know, fear mongering. of the people, yeah, yeah. and the fear. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah it, it is sad, it is sad. I was, uh, we were very confident, you know, we were actually at the, in front of the embassy, you mm. know, Colombian embassy, with lots of Latin Americans. Personally, I'm not Colombian, I'm, I'm Chilean, but I, I'm from the Latin American Social Forum, so yep. there were people from, from Guatemala, El Salvador, Uruguay, um, many other Chile, there were a huge group of people, and then many Colombians, you know, came with us, and, and they wrote pictures and videos, and later on, we came with music, and it was a lot of people, and we were really confident, we thought, you know, yeah, people will vote for peace. But when talking to Colombian people, it looks like it's a lot more complex than that. They don't see it as, 
you you're not voting for yes for peace. You're voting for the fuck. You're voting for terrorism. Voting for chaos. Um, and 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 even intelligent, well-educated people. You know, I work with somebody. Unfortunately, they you know they have that opinion. And mm. then there's also a large population that um, they just not vote. As we mentioned before, they just not interested in voting. Mm. Jacob wants to ask you something. Uh, hey, something another, so important as this. Yeah. I guess sure. another que- a question I have is. Um, it seems like, you know, the sort of uh, what you're sort of um, saying is there seems the left um, wing in Colombia seems to be really weak. And I guess in light of this rubric, sort of what's next, um, you know, for the left kind of wing forces and the sort of social movements to sort of um, fight back against this sort of, you know, rise of um, right wing politics in Colombia? Yeah. Well, what makes, I'm not sure that you're aware of what's happening in the last you know, two or three days. I mean, at the beginning... Um, um, uh, Santos, you know, said about three days ago, four days ago, that on the 30th of this month, it's going to be a, they're going to stop the ceasefire. Um, now in the last, this, this then later, yesterday, the day before, uh, now he's talking about sitting with Uribe, you know, the guy that had nothing to do with this, didn't want to participate in the peace process, nothing to do with going to, to Cuba and, and, you know, talking about, you know, peace treaties. Um, now, Uribe, the, the biggest campaigner for the no, ex-president, is sitting at the table with Santos to sort of a renegotiation. Um, so Santos is actually is saying that he, he definitely wants to continue with this peace. Mm. Uh, he wants to, and he's now willing to renegotiate with the sort of extreme right people that, you know, wanted to know. Um, so unfortunately, it, it looks like it sounds like Uribe. Now, I mean, there is a movement for peace, uh, but it looks like Uribe now is going to be of an advantage, you know, the right-wing group, um, because they now are going to sit at the table and they're going to put some conditions, change some of the things that, you know, the other guys for about, you know, the table in, in, in Havana mm. that for about five, took about almost five years to, to decide. Mm. So so it, that's what it looks like happening. Uh, the another thing that I, that I heard and is happening, you know, from at least from the from the uh, the people that you know supported the, the peace in um, in Australia or in Sydney, they actually are now talking about what we're gonna do next. The first thing that they're thinking is is developing a a network um, through Facebook to all the people that you know, all the Colombians around the world, to get solidarity from governments, institutions, organizations, unions, political parties to put pressure on the Colombian government to continue this peace. Mm. One of the things that I heard was the peace negotiations, the conditions was too generous to the FARC, in particular giving them uh, legitimacy um, to become part of the community again and also to be able to form a political force and a political party. The right-wing forces definitely didn't like that. And that was the majority of the no-campaign. Yes. If, if, because that's one of the one of the, the conditions or they were saying, you know, they would take some of, you know, places in government and they will actually be able to to register as a political party. Mm. Uh, and, and that's the major part of the campaign. They said, you see, they're going to take over. And that's what they used. And that's what they used as saying that our FARC now being um, recognized as um, a socialist or left-wing 
um, group that is going to take over, like in Venezuela and Cuba and so on. It's, a, it's that That's the right. crux of that campaign that, that draw people away. That's right. And, and there's no, you know, a spirit of, they're not talking about reconciliation or anything. And as some people are saying, you know, if, if the, you know, if there's um, a peace treaty, it, it needs to be judged. You know, they need to be judged for the crimes that they committed. Mm. And people in, in, in Colombia have this perception that the FARC committed the majority of the crimes that happened, well, in the last, you know, many, many years in Colombia. But if you look at the statistics and then you look at the evidence, 60 to 7 percent of the of the killings that happen in there happen from the paramilitary. Paramilitary. Mm. Yes, 60 to 70 percent. No, not the FARC, but for many people it was because of the FARC. So if the FARC goes to court for whatever is needed to, to be judged, then the paramilitary and the yes. government needs to be judged. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's why you know there's none of these you know they nobody wants that, but that's. That's something that, you know, people are talk- were talking about. I said, you know, how come they're going to just sit in government, we forget, and, and just let them be in government? You know, they're going to take over. Mm. Very delicate, mm. very delicate. It is It is a complex situation. And, uh, you know, for me, I was thinking, you know, yes, peace, no, not peace, that's it. But if you talk to Colombians, they just have a, a whole, you know, bigger uh, arguments and, and picture. And it looks like they're very manageable. They're very easy to, to move from one side to the other. My husband works with some Colombians in, in here in, in Australia, and one day they will say, yeah, but yes, but they say, no, I'm not going to vote. And the other day they say, oh, I vote, no. Yeah. So it's like, they, no. Yeah, um, plus, there's a large number of people that didn't vote because they didn't get the chance of register in the, um, you know, overseas. Oh, so overseas Colombia. people didn't vote? Uh, a, a very majority in, in Australia, at least, because um, they didn't have the chance to re- register because um, it was a very sudden decision to do the, the referendum. Mm. And if the people, at least in Australia, I'm not sure what around the world, but in Australia to register, if they didn't vote for the previous elections because of they weren't here or they couldn't or whatever reason, um, many didn't get the chance to register to the referendum. They have a very little window of, of time. Hmm. So do you think um, they'll rerun the referendum by any chance? I don't think so. I don't know. I'm, I'm, well, anything can happen now. But yeah. I, I, I don't think so. I mean, you know, it will have to be a huge campaign. I think having a referendum was a mistake, personally. Yeah. Mm. Um, I don't think it should not happen if it took all those years for them to sit on the table and... and, and and, and negotiate this, this peace. Um, why do you need to be a referendum um, about it? You know? <laughs> Sounds like a plebiscite question here on the equal yeah. marriage thing. Why have a plebiscite just sign the agreement and you've got peace? That's right. But, but I think it's, it's almost like, you know, I, personally, now I don't trust anybody, and I feel it almost sounds like a, a strategy from, from the the current government too, it was, mm. or maybe he was too confident that everybody's going to vote yes. But interesting I, point, I yes. Mm, it could have been a strategy as well. I said, no. You I never mean, know, do you? You just never know people, what's many, happening. Yeah, many, <laughs> many people say it was their opinion. Why it had to be a referendum? I mean, if you, if it's, I mean, I, it's not the same comparison, but again, why a referendum about equal sex marriage? You know. Yep. Same, same sort of approach, isn't it? So why did they even go for a referendum for peace? Just yeah, in, in pe- case, everybody yeah, wants, it yeah. Sense. It makes sense, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, 
Absolutely mind-boggling, isn't it? But anyway, thank you so, so much, Paula. You've raised more questions for me than answers in a sense. But it's an interesting roundup of what's happening there. And, and, and it's good to relate that to other plebiscites and referendums around the world, like in Australia. Why? You know, why do you have to have these referendums and plebiscites on issues that are a given, I mean, people want peace. Why do you have to go to a referendum to ask them if they want peace? And here, why do you have to ask people about equal right um, marriage when, you know, well, it's a, it's a human right. Get on with it. It doesn't make yeah, any sense. Yeah, yeah I, I think what's important now, you know, is this, that we're not giving up and, and the Colombians are not giving up. Mm. Um, people in, in, you know, outside Colombia is the ones that voted, yes, the majority except for two countries, the United States and Alaska. Um, um, but but the majority wants peace. So the Colombians from Australia that are for the peace process, they are actually going to continue with this campaign. We actually have um, our regular meeting this weekend, and they they coming with the you know how what are we doing next? And one of the the things is get this network around the world um, and get Colombians for peace and Latin Americans and Australians and you know people around the world to support and to pressure. Because mm. we mm. know it's a second, it's a huge thing happening in Latin America. Um, many, many people talking about the second Operation Condor yes. in, in Latin America. I mean, you know, there's a second big, and, and we still see it happening. It's, it's, you know, in Venezuela, you know, it, mm. trying to attack Ecuador, Bolivia, yes. this, you know, get the, the, the reputation of the government, yes. you know, change and, and you know, get. You know, negative reputation. So basically, they're trying to to regain, you know, what they lost yes, in, you yes. know, in the socialism of the 21st century. Absolutely. Now, yeah, on that yeah. note, um, I wonder if you want to give out the website where people can keep updated on this particular issue, Paula. Yeah, actually, if you actually um, from if you go to the Facebook on the, the Latin American the Latin American Social Forum mm-hmm. or Latin American Social Forum. Yep. Just, just you know, just Google it and you'll find the the, the Facebook. Yep. And there, and, and we actually keep up to date with information about you know and events that are happening, uh, not just in, in in Colombia, but you know we just recently had a big conversation with international people uh, by Skype, three people um, about Colombia just the week before the, the yep. election. Yep. Sounds good. Um, and you also so organize. You have a lot of events, don't you, as well? On that. Oh, heaps from, you know, Guatemala is coming soon because there's, um, you know, a lot of things happening in Guatemala. We soon in, in November 12th, I think, I believe. Uh, yeah, we have an event about Mexico mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, there's a lot of things happening. Yes, anyway. yes. Uh, we constantly do participate in, you know, link with universities and other groups with events about, you know, the situation in Brazil, what's happening in Venezuela. Mm. Um, Sounds good. ABSN, ABSN is part of the forum as well, the mm. Australian-Venezuela Solidarity Network. Okay, we've been a roundup on this yeah. one. Thank you so yeah. much, thank because you. time's running out. Sorry to, to cut you off there. Um, yeah, but <laughs> thank you so much for coming, and uh, we'll, we'll have to keep up to date about Latin America with you, because now we want to know what's going to happen next, of course. So we will yeah. talk to you again in the, in the near future to update yeah. on Latin America. Thanks, Paula. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. 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 Welcome back to Green Life Weekly Radio with Jenk and Malali here, heading towards the the end of the show soon. And one more interview. Jacob's got another piece of news he wants to read. Okay, so um, we're in the activist calendar now. Um, so um, 
what's happening in t- um, terms of what you can do to get active, um, there will be um, a speak-out against Pauling Hansen happening at the Burke Street Mall at the Swanson Street side, and that is going to be st- um, starting at 5.30. It's a speak-out, speak isn't it? Yes, so it's sort of like a rally, a speak-out. They might, it might end up in a rally, actually, depending if um, enough people mobilise for it. Um, but, yeah, so it's organised by the National Union of Students, and it will probably be a good opportunity to sort of... Um, have your voice heard uh, against um, Hanson and, and her racism. Um, tomorrow there'll be a marriage equality rally, um, as mentioned earlier in the show. They'll be happening at 1 p.m. at the State Library. Okay, so I just, I, as I mentioned before, I wanted to give you some details about what's happening uh, with the West Papua campaign and the office. They have an office in Docklands, and it is uh, 838 Collins Street, Docklands. It's suite 211. Um, the telephone number is 9049-9590. It's usually open from Monday to Friday, 10 to 4. So if you'd like to visit them, talk to, talk to somebody there. They've always some, the staff members always there to, to, to chat about you know, what you would like to do. And do remember about that $1 donation per day if you can afford it. Now, another announcement, Peter Norman Day. This is on Sunday, 9th of October. It's in honour of great Australian, a great Australian who has been written out of this country's history. Now, Peter Norman was on the podium um, in 1968, Mexico Olympics, silver medalist who supported his two American Olympic medalist when they gave the Black Power salute at the podium. The American Track and Field Association um, has designed October 9th as um, Peter Norman Day to acknowledge the support of human rights at 12 noon in the city square in Swanton Street. That's the 9th of October. Now, the other important thing for 3CR is we're having an open day on the 9th again. It's uh, from 12 to 4. So you can go to Norman, Peter Norman Day and, and come over and celebrate um, the open day at uh, 3CR. It's celebrating 40 years of radical radio. Join us at afternoon tea and there'll be music and people around to talk, chat to and, and look at studios and how things are done here. And one of the events which is also happening on the 9th is Rocking for West Papua, a musical evening at the Bendigo Hotel from 4 p.m. onwards, 125 Johnson Street, Collingwood. Okay, now we've got the next person, next um, interview online. Jacob, yes? Yes, um, we have um, Mary Ann, who is um, the secretary of the Friends of Queen Victoria Market, um, and she's going to be talk, talking um, to us about sort of um, sort of the plans of developers to basically destroy, get, Queen, Queen, destroy Queen, Queen Victoria Markets. Yeah. Good Hello. morning, Miriam. Good morning. All right. So, can you um, so um, can you tell us about you know what what are these um, new proposals about you know t- about changing Queen Victoria Markets? Um, so um, for the um, for listeners. Um, well, the the, the Cal- Melbourne City Council. Um, manage the market on behalf of the people of Victoria and they think Queen Victoria market needs renewal and by renewal basically what they mean is that they use land around the market which is currently public land either owned by the council or given to them by the state government to build huge towers and they're going to build these towers with developers and we say that in order to justify those developments 
they have decided that they'll revamp, in other words, um, change the market um, into a sort of kind of tourist leisure precinct. So the market, in effect, will become the forecourt to the developments. Um, and the first thing they want to do is take away the car parking um, and move it into the basement of one of the towers, but it's not clear that there'll be sufficient car parking. Um, they're, they're, they haven't actually shown anyone the plans, but they want to take the current parking lot and they want to turn it into a kind of plaza area. And then they want to do other things in the market, like they want to move all the services underground um, and um, basically reduce the amount of trading in the market, gentrify the trading in the market and make it a kind of entertainment precinct. So basically what, what could this, um, what this means sort of in practice is that, um, one of the things about Queen Victoria markets is that, you know, it's kind of like well known to be a place where you can get sheep food, sort of sheep clothing. Um, is this basically going to ensure that it's mostly going to be a very commercialised thing and it's going to be more equivalent to say, um, the shopping centre on, a super, a shopping centre on say, Burke Street? Yeah, I mean, you can already see that on the corner of um, Queen Street and Terry Street, there was an old post office which had been turned into a croissant shop oh. and was operated by a guy for, I can't remember how many years his lease was, but a very long time. Now, market management in the last couple of years have given him notice. They kicked him out. He lost his business, and this is a small business guy, and they've given that space over to a trendy chef who's going to put in an upmarket deli stroke takeaway selling expensive um, products. So we think that that's their vision for what will be left of the market. So who's actually doing this? It's um, the Melbourne City Council? Yes, well, the Melbourne City Council has initiated the renewal project. The market itself is managed by a corporate board of management, but they very much do what the council asks them to do. And there's no trader and no community representation on the board of management. Yeah, and uh, business has a big, big vote on council, hasn't it? Absolutely. Now, the council claim they've um, consulted, and indeed they started a consultation process in 2014, and they gave people opportunities to say what they think. And what's interesting is that people did say what they think, and councils completely ignored what they said because it doesn't fit in with their plans. Of course. Because nearly all the people who've responded, not all, but nearly all, have said, leave the market alone. Yes, I believe um, the Preston market is also um, facing a similar predicament, uh, yes. but that's another story. We'll it is, because that's got private ownership, um, and it has its own commun local community. One of the problems of the Victoria market is that people come to the market from all over Melbourne. So we've basically communicated with people on Facebook, and the traders have been very proactive. So as a, as a community group, we work with the traders, and the traders have joined the National Union of Workers mm. and um, produced their own sort of um, um, organisation, but we're working hand-in-hand. Hand. Uh, so can you tell us more about um, this sort of campaign that is kind of developing against um, all these sort of proposed plans to remap the Victoria market? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, Mr Doyle thinks that the things are done, done deal, and by... The other thing is that most of the commercial arrangements have been done in confidence in the council. So apart from a few articles in the age, um, we don't know what's been done in terms of um, what he's doing with, the, for example, the Munro's land. And the council hasn't actually 
they claim they don't have definite plans, which is absurd when they've already started the process. So they're, they're being very sneaky about this. Um, in spite of this, we've used Facebook as a way to galvanise popular support, and we've done very well. We've got, you know, we can get up to 70 or 80,000 um, um, hits on a good post, um, and we have about, um, we have, I can't remember now, maybe up to 3,000 likes. And even an ordinary post has about a 20,000 spread. So that's been interesting. Um, and the traders themselves, as I said, have joined the NUW. Um, everything's gone into abeyance now because we're waiting for the council elections. And Phil Cleary is standing um, as a kind of market pa- candidate as Sounds Lord good. Mayor. Hmm. And um, there are other candidates um, who are standing. Um, Jackie Watts, who's been on the council for a while and... Um, also Councillor Richard Foster, have been fantastically supportive Mm. and they're standing for re-election. We've been very disappointed with the attitude of the Greens. Oh, really? Tell us more. Well, because the Greens... First of all, there's a game going on to see who wins the inner city electorates. That's not a problem. That's not a secret. And I think um, this is my own personal opinion. That's fine. But the Greens seem to think that if they hitch themselves to Mr Doyle and to the power block and to Councillor Stephen Main and the power block and the existing power block in the city council, they'll be able to deliver benefits for their own constituents and that'll play back into the the, the fight for inner city Melbourne in terms of political um, representation. Um, and the second thing is that, it, you know, Greens rightly are interested in um, sustainability. Absolutely. And, and so, of course, the argument they are making is that intensification in the inner city is a good thing, that it's good to increase the population um, in order to, you know, preserve rural areas and city outskirts. And so they're very happy to walk, work alongside the developers um, to increase um, high-density living in inner-city Melbourne. Um, now... You know, that, that's a separate argument to the market. Yeah, that's not nothing to do with the market, yes. But the effect has been that in terms of the market, they've consistently supported the plans of um, Mr Doyle and they have not been interested in joining our campaign at all. Hmm. And, and your group, how, how big is it? Well, we've got a um, couple of hundred members as, in terms of actual signed-up members. But as I said, we've got up to 3,000 Facebook likes and much wider support so you know i mean we 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 think there's consistent we think very few people in the market community and we think that includes traders but also customers believe that this um this so-called renewal is going to save the market we think it's going to destroy the market mm. so the, what sort of campaign is your group running because it isn't it it's, this is to pay, pay the devil's advocate. Isn't it more crucial now to mobilise people to campaign against this plan while the elections are on yeah. to convey a message that people in this place are not interested in gentrifying this market? Is, and, is, is yeah. that a ploy? I mean, a plan? Yeah, and, and, and we're doing that through the Phil Cleary campaign um, and we're trying to raise funds to do that. So if people want to... Um, want to log on to um, Friends of Queen Victoria Market and want to support the campaign, there is a link to the Phil Cleary for Mayor campaign. And also through the local residence group, we're supporting, as I said, other candidates 
who's been um, Pro- strong on the market. Yeah. Um, and um, so that's good. Um, what else can people do? They can join the Facebook page and, or like the Facebook page and that way they'll be in touch with the different things that have happened. We have had some demonstrations. Yep. Um, we've had some great meetings with traders at Trades Hall. Um, and the thing I was going to say before is the other thing is that we need to keep pressure on the state planning minister because in the end what's going to happen is firmly in Dick Wynne's pocket. So people need who care need to lobby their local members of parliament or lobby um, the planning minister, Dick Wynne, directly, writing and so on, um, to let them know that they're against this. And the councils, it's a bit like the East-West link. Mm. The council, there is, even though the council has signed off on some aspects of this and they think it's all a done deal, there is room to negotiate with a new council and if the minister is prepared to respond to community concerns. So it's a state and council matter, isn't it? It's a combined matter. Yes, the, 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 I mean, the legal, legalities of it are that um, the state government has ultimate control over it for several reasons. And so it would be difficult for the council to go ahead without, um, the, without Minister Wynne's approval. They've, the council have made a planning amendment to allow them to put high-rise around the market mm. because at the moment um, the current planning um, overlay doesn't allow for high-rise around the market. And that needs to be signed off by the minister. And he's been sitting on it for a number of months and it's very hard to tell which way he's going to jump. So we urge people again to contact the minister or their local member of parliament to put, pro- um, put pressure on the minister. Mm. Okay, is there any other demonstration coming up in the near future that we can announce? Well, I think the main thing is that people look at the Facebook page. They like the Facebook page. It's called Friends of Queen Victoria Market. Mm-hmm. Um, and by doing that, um, they'll be in touch with what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and be able to respond um, if, 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 for example, um, there's a demonstration or something like that. Yep. And obviously anybody who's got ideas about how we can do things better um, and wants to be actively involved in the campaign is very, very welcome. Yeah. Um, just a quick, a quick thing. There, there has actually been some mass meetings of, um, on this issue from um, the National Union workers. That's so, right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great. Well... It's amazing. I, I, I'm stunned by this whole, the whole phenomena that you would want to gentrify such a iconic place. And this, this building, this, this big market was fought for by the union movement. Yeah. I think it was the 70s, 80s. It was in the 70s. Yeah, they were going to knock it down. And, That's and, correct. and the union saved it and now yeah. they're at it again. That's right. And we're hoping the unions again will be instrumental. We've been talking to Trades Hall and the National Union of Workers obviously as a way that we can develop um, support also with some other unions. The building unions would be crucial in this. So anyone who's got contacts with the building unions, mm-hmm. just go and let them know that this is their chance to, <laughs> um, you know, get involved in a genuine community campaign and to help once again save a really important feature of Melbourne. Can I say one other thing? Absolutely. Which I forgot to say before is that one of the reasons that we think the market, that is friends think the market is important, is that it's, it's a very democratic space. 
the thing about the market, and, and the council has run it down, so it's not what it was even five years ago, but it still remains a place where people from all different walks of life meet together. Mm. It's not like a shopping centre. You don't have to be vetted to be allowed in. Yes. You can, you know, come along. And, and so if you go at lunchtime on a Friday, like I do, you've got, you know, senior city barristers doing their shopping <laughs> next to people who are clearly not terribly well off. And they're all doing something together, and they actually talk to each other. Yes. And so it has, in a world that where we're increasingly segmented, yes. and people don't have a chance to, to build links across different kinds of groups, it's a fantastic to be in a place which still allows that kind of um, um, democratic participation in sort of a common basic human need. And, and um, we think that's one of the most important things about the market. And the other important thing I, I experienced being, uh, being a migrant is that a lot of the overseas visitors who come, mm-hmm. this, this is an icon they visit. It's, yes, a, it's, it's, it. it's of tourist importance. If they want tourists to come to, to Melbourne and enjoy this unique environment, Vic Market is the place to go to. Yeah. Well, they want to make it generic. You know, they, they, they keep going on about food vans. And, oh. I mean, I was in Vancouver two years ago, and they said to me, oh, Vancouver's amazing, it's a city of food vans. Mm. And I'm going, well, actually, you know, we have them in Melbourne. So pushing <laughs> the things like that, I mean, this this kind of, um, you know, trendy stuff is, is, is all very... I'm, you know, I'm as much in favour of food vans as anybody else, but it's not unique to Melbourne. I'm sorry, and, but I'm against food vans. <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, I'd agree with... I, I, we could have this discussion. But yes. my point is that the market is unique. You know, yes. the market is special. Exactly. It's different. Mm. And by turning it into a food van, gentrified, more coffee, for God's sake, place, I know, I know. it loses what's special mm. about it. It's unique. It loses uniqueness. Yeah. It's like another McDonald's down the corner. Anyway, yeah. Mariam, <laughs> we are running out of time. Okay. <laughs> we'll have to keep tabs on this campaign as well, and especially after the elections of the, the yeah. council and yeah. so on. So thank you so much for being available. And thank we'll, you. That was, talking thanks to you. Thanks for your enthusiasm. Okay, then. And bye. thank you for the great work you're doing. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Okay, bye. Bye. Okay, so that is bringing us to the end of the program. And do you have any other announcement before we run out? Um, what um, we do just, um, um, I think, one last sort of announcement. Um, this is for just to um, book this date in um, for next month. Um, there'll be a big mass sort of um, mobilisation um, for refugee rights happening on Saturday, November the fifth, at one pm um, State Library. Um, you know, in light of sort of like you know the um, the man- um, the government sort of mandatory detention um, policies of detaining asylum seekers, it's um, very important. Um, that we um, attend this, um, that we, you know, mobilise as many people as possible um, to this, you know, bring at least, you know, if you could, if everyone could bring at least sort of 10 friends of each individual who's going, then I think we could have a really massive rally that would really put the pressure on the government. Um, and, of course, we're going low on time and um, <laughs> say um, that. that was just really sort of um, the note to sort of end it on. Um, you're listening to Green Left um, Weekly Radio, so thank you, listeners, um, for tuning in to another week. Um, and thank you to Sarah Hathaway um, for the interview about the Karaya refinery dispute. 
and to Paula Sanchez for updating us about what's happening in Latin America. And of course, Miriam, I didn't get her surname, unfortunately. But, but she's, she's the, the Secretary of the Queen, um, Secretary Friends of the Queen, Queen which is great. And you've heard all the links. Um, uh, of course, head to the internet if you want to participate in any of these campaigns. Thank you for listening and for, till next week.